And Happy New Year. Five of y'all said it back. Cool. Happy New Year. Anyone after 2020 and 2021 a little nervous to call it happy yet? Like, we want to wait and see. Like, I want to wait and see for three months if this is going to be happy or not. I'll let you know if it's a happy new year in March. Like, anybody with me on that? Like, I'll get back to you. After the first three years, let me just wait a minute before we call it happy. Um, Hey, I am excited for this new year. Next week, we're starting a series called the One Another Campaign. And we're going to be spending the new year looking at the 59 unique statements where we're called as the church to do something in consideration, in love for, uh, and, and help to another. And so most of us spend the early part of the year focused on ourselves, and that usually lasts about six days. And then, and, and then we get back to just doing whatever we were doing beforehand. Our goal is that at Four Points Church this year, we would spend the year focused on Another, and so we're going to start the year doing that next week. Today, I want to do. I've called this Heat Check Sunday. Heat Check Sunday. Uh, I grew up. Uh, I know I don't look it, but I was a baller back in the day. Um, my stat line says I was a baller back in the day, um, and uh, I, I even like I even knew the Skilo song. Anybody remember Skilo? He had one song. I wish I was a little bit taller. Wish I was a baller. Wish I had a girl in the hood. I would call anyway. All right, sorry. That has nothing to. Do. Like some people are tracking with me. Other people are like, what's going on? What's happening? Um, no, I, I love playing basketball. And I loved, believe it or not, I was not a above the rim riser. I, I dunked like twice in my life. And it was like maybe a dunk and the goal may have been nine and a half feet, but who's counting? Okay. I was a shooter. And whenever I would get hot, I would feel like the bucket got so big that I couldn't miss. Anybody been there? Like, no matter where you're at in the court, you are in your zone. Like, I, before Steph Curry was Steph Curry, I thought I was Steph Curry. <laughs> Until you would go through a heat check. And a heat check would make you realize you're not as hot as you think you are because you would get further and further behind that three-point line until you missed and your coach wanted you to come and sit beside him and think about your life choices for a while. Well, what I want us to do today is I want us to do a spiritual heat check. I want, to, I want you to do some introspection and ask the question, am I valuing the things that matter most? Is what I'm spending my time, my focus, my attention on things that will matter a year from now or 10 years from now or in light of eternity, will it still matter when we get there? And so I, I want to do a heat check spiritually within the church today because I believe God has good work for us, but we can't be a lukewarm people if we want to see a great work of God. We can't be a lukewarm people if we want to see a great work from God. And one of my favorite leaders told me one time, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So something's got to change if you're currently not getting the results that you want to see in your life, spiritually, physically, whatever it may be. Are you tracking with me? So nothing changes, nothing changes. We can't be lukewarm and expect God to do a great work. I don't want us to be a lukewarm church. I want us to be a church that inhabits the presence of God, loves God well, and loves others as a result of it. And so we're going to spend some time looking at a very difficult text to look at that will ask some very hard questions of us. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 6. And as we're doing this heat check, I just want to talk to you about this. Some of you may have been there. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you got so consumed with something that you lost yourself? Like like you realized somehow in an epiphany, wow, that went further than we thought. That escalated quickly. I, I can't believe that I was there and I participated in that and got that passionate about that thing. Any of you ever had a moment like that. And like you're like, holy cow, I can't believe at my kids' T-ball game, I just said that to the referee in front of all. I, 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 it happened to me at Walmart. It's where a lot of epiphanies happen. A lot of 
moments of reckoning with God where I realized maybe my life choices aren't as good as they should have been. Um, it was about four or five years ago, my wife and I were celebrating Thanksgiving with some friends, and when we left our friend's house, we had to drive by Walmart, and they had a really good selling video games. Four years ago, Luke was three, my son, just to keep this in context, and I convinced my wife that we should go and get some video games for our son. Yeah. <laughs> now, there's a pallet grand opening at Walmart on Black Friday or Thanksgiving night, and I don't know if you've ever been to one of those, but... It's an experience. People camp out. They've been eating jack-in-the-box and fried foods on Thanksgiving, and it ain't been a healthy situation because they wanted to be in line to get that Xbox that they had four of that was going to be $99.99 because, you know, we ain't going $199.99. We'd rather take an elbow to the face to get that sucker and get out of there. And so I go in there at the crack of 15 minutes before the pallets are going to be open, and I can't even get over to where the video games are. Instead, I'm stuck over here by these mystery pallets that have a lot of women that are really... Like, like, they know, like they have x-ray vision, they know something's in it. And when that 15-minute time cap came up, all of a sudden they opened it, and it was towels and rags. And they lost their mind. Grown women diving on top of other women to get towels and rags. Now, I was standing there trying to get in the video game line, so I grabbed some just in spite, just because I was like, well, if it's such a hot commodity... And they were trying, they were a dollar for the rag and two dollars for the towel. And I was like, five dollars, five dollars. But, but about, the, about the second time I caught an elbow, I realized, what am I doing? Why am I here? Why do towels and rags matter so much? And about the time that thought hit me, a 16-year-old Walmart employee, the most sane one in the entire store, walked up and said, ladies, it's just a towel. To which they all stopped for five seconds and looked and went, and then went back to grabbing as much as they could. I, I don't want you to be out of place, and I don't want you to value the wrong things. I want you to value Jesus well in this upcoming year. My goal is that you would be more dependent upon Jesus 365 days from today than you are right now. My goal is that you would look more desperate for Jesus 365 days from now than you do right now. Now, those are weird terms, but my goal is that you would not diminish in your need of God, but that you would grow in your understanding of how much you need Him every hour and every minute and every moment of the day. You are way underestimating, I just want to throw it out there, all of us are way underestimating our need for Jesus in our lives right now. No matter how much you think you need him, you need him more than you think you need him. No matter how much you've realized how good he is, he is better than what you've realized his goodness to be. God is worthy of so much more than we could ever offer or give him with our lives, with our adoration, with our attention, with our time, with our talents. Yet, yet, for many of us, we believe uh, that Jesus is someone to be uh, admired around the holidays and then withdrawn from throughout the rest of the year. And this coming and going is something that Satan does, and it's not something that I want us to do. Satan presents himself before the Lord when it's convenient for him in the book of Job. But he goes and withdraws from the presence of the Lord trying to keep his deeds in secret. I want for you to live a life that's in the light of Christ. That walks in the light because he is light. That loves Jesus. That grows in its adoration and dependency upon Jesus. And that will not happen accidentally. So we have to do some heat checks, some introspection. And Matthew chapter 6 is an incredible chapter to do that. It's a Christian application, life living type chapter. The first part of the chapter in Matthew chapter 6 speaks of how to do your good works and how not to do your 
good works. When you go out to serve, you don't get a bullhorn and let everyone know, hey, at Christmas, our family not only overspent on ourselves, but we gave 50 bucks to the single mom to get a Christmas present for her kid too. That's not how the kingdom of God works. You don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Then we're taught how to pray because some people like to pray these extravagant Today, it would be like praying in King James, though we live in America in 2022. So you get up, and that person's com- talking completely normally to you, but then they get in public space to pray, and it's, Oh, Father, thou hast seenest our wickedness of heart. And you're like, what are you doing? Why'd you go weird? What happened to you? Did, like, what possesses you in this moment? Like, like what, what medieval creature? has like stepped into your brain and begun to speak. And so Jesus says, no, no, don't, don't, don't pray for a show. Pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. You have a Father. He's in heaven. He's enthroned. He is not like us. He does not work and doesn't, uh, isn't an agent of chaos and the brokenness like we are. Instead, he is seated in authority. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a mission reminder so it gives you perspective. Your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. And that is the way that we pray. It's this reminder, not that we're demanding that God change our world, but we're demanding and asking of God to change us, to transform us in this world so that we would be a light in darkness. And then everyone's favorite part of Matthew chapter 6 comes up right after the Lord's Prayer. Look at it with me. Matthew 6, verse 19. Don't store up treasures here on earth. It's hard to deal with this text after Christmas, isn't it? (laughs) Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven. Wouldn't that sweet? Don't that sound like a Hallmark movie? Where moss and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, here's why, there, is, there the desires of your heart will be also. So we get a negative command, a don't, and we get a do. Okay, The don't is don't make your life about the treasure of earth. Don't make this year, don't make your resolutions about the treasure of this year. Because wrath and moths destroy, or moss and rust can destroy the things that are treasures of earth. Let's get into what are treasures of earth. What does that look like? What does it look like to have a life that is prioritized around the treasures of earth? Well, treasures are things that can be bought with money, all right? It's stuff you can buy. It's stuff that will not sustain itself, will have to be replaced, and likely came with batteries. It's, it's time-stamped. It's important for a moment, but not for a lifetime. It's stuff that expires, breaks, and runs out. It's stuff that will not matter a decade from now, much less in eternity. How many of you got someone's stuff and by December 27th heard from that person, I've got nothing to do? Talking to the parents, right? You you put intentionality and thought into, this will entertain them. I will get a, a respite. I will get to to drink a whole cup of coffee because I got them this thing. And then, two days later, they already are not infatuated with the stuff. And they want more stuff. My kids got stuff. And then they got a gift card so they could go get more stuff. We made it one 
day. And they were like, can we go buy more? And I'm like, what's going on? You just got, like we have not even opened all of the stuff that you just had. And you want to go get more stuff that we'll have to store somewhere. Keep up with somehow that I'll step on in the middle of the night and say ungodly things. Yet, it's not a children's problem. It's a human problem. And for many of us, we've spent the last years focused on stuff. Our stuff wasn't a Lego. It was a promotion. Our stuff wasn't a a play car. It was an upgraded car. Our stuff wasn't a a video game or being a social media influencer. It was getting likes and attaboys from the people that we work with and our colleagues. And we gave our passion and we gave our time and our best attention to the pursuit of those things. And the warning of this text is don't make your life about something so menial that doesn't matter. Don't make the the goal, the main aim, where where you give your best to something that has to constantly be sustained and replaced by something else. Now, let me be very clear. Some of us read this text, and we immediately think that this text is a text that's saying, don't have anything, don't possess anything, hate possessions, be poor, because the only way to be holy is to be poor. Never go to a movie, never laugh, never buy anything, never enjoy it. it, it just, just be a miserable sap because this isn't your home. And that is nowhere found in this text and in the context of Scripture. We interpret Scripture, when you see one te- text, we interpret that, one of the biggest ways we interpret it is by the entire Council of the Bible. So we take this text and we look at the entire Council of the Bible and then we get, begin to realize some context around what Jesus is saying. In fact, Douglas Sean O'Donnell said this about um, this text Jesus is not teaching anything that would contradict what is said elsewhere in God's Word. So he is not anti private property. He assumes, like the Ten Commandments do, that people do and will own things. Nor is he anti labor. He is not saying there's no need to get a job, no need to work, no need to provide for your family. 1 Timothy 5.8 had to correct people who were starting to act like, well, since Jesus is coming back, why work? Why worry? Just live on credit cards. Stack up debt. No need to worry about it. Jesus is coming back. Don't do that. He is not anti-banking, anti-banking, anti-savings, or anti-investment. Moreover, he is not even anti-enjoyment. Shocker for some of you. He does not contradict Ecclesiastes, which teaches we should enjoy the work of our hands. The point is, these temporal things should not consume us to the point that they become our life ambition. Deion Sanders, primetime, football coach, baseball player for the Atlanta Braves, God's team, and the Atlanta Falcons. Used to be God's team, but then we got the Panthers, whatever. Um, my, My point is, he won the Super Bowl. And they asked him how he felt, and he said it was the worst night of his life because he had nothing else to live for. That's temporal, earthly things. John Mayer famously said, why does it seem that everything that I need always requires batteries? It's a good question. And for some of us, our life ambition has been about that. What's the positive command in the text? The positive command is store your treasures in heaven. Now, what in the world does that mean? Like, can I just be honest? I, I've read that until I was a preacher going to school and study, and I, I was like, what, what? Does that just mean be a good boy or girl? Is that like Santa's naughty list? Like, what, what are we getting into here with treasures in heaven? What, what do you mean store up treasures 
in heaven. Well, treasure in heaven looks different than treasure on earth. Let me give you one illustration of that. And right now on earth, some of you, you've got gold. Like you're, you're into like buying gold. You're not into crypto stuff because that's weird to you. You're probably a baby boomer and you're trying to find as much literal gold as you can find. You don't want us to know how much gold you got. It'd make everybody uncomfortable. But you got some gold and you're stacking on it and it's a security for you. Heaven, when Jesus comes back, takes gold and paves the streets with it. So you give like your paychecks and your ambition and you put your security in gold and God goes, I paved my streets with it. It's a little different. Treasure in heaven looks different. Earthly treasure, you can buy. Heavenly treasure has to be bought for you and it's blood bought by the blood of Jesus. So you don't earn a status in heaven by good works. Your status in heaven is determined by his work and you receiving it by grace through faith in your life. So it's not, it's not bought with money and it's not bought with attention and it can't be hoarded. It is blood bought. It had to be purchased by Jesus. It can only be received as a gift from Jesus. The good news is Jesus offers it to whosoever so you don't have to be a good person or a morally ethnic person to come into relationship with Jesus and to be forgiven and to receive his gift and inheritance as a part of something that he shares with you. Heavenly treasure is something that you receive not by your earning but then you respond in receiving it with an attitude and a life that now prioritizes everything in light of eternity and in light of forgiveness and in light of heaven that's been freely given to you. So because you've been forgiven, because you have this secured eternity that you have not earned, because Jesus shares his riches with those who are in Christ on the last day, you and I now get to live a different life on earth because we no longer treasure these things because in comparison to what Christ has given us, these things seem like trinkets and toys and this seems like the actual pearl of high value. After all, that's what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 13, he says, there's a man that found a pearl that was of great value and he buried it and went and sold everything that he had and bought the field so that he could have the pearl. The point isn't that you buy your salvation. The point of the message isn't that you uh, earn your way into heaven. The point of that parable is that Jesus is a treasure and he's worthy of your complete and total adoration. He's worthy of you taking this earth and gripping it so loosely that it looks careless to those who treasure it. Because you're gripping and holding on to Jesus so tightly because he's the true treasure. Does this make sense? That's where we get silver and gold, silver and gold. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. No fame or fortune, no riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. Don't play with me. Don't give me a mansion on top of a hill. And don't give me a fortune that this world can steal. Oh, I'm singing. I'm, I'm, I'm wor- Y'all may not be with me in treasure, but I'm treasuring the right thing right now. I don't want to treasure the stuff. Just give me a savior, my life he can hold. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. Don't tell me that's what you're about whenever. <laughs> don't be quick on that. Don't, don't be quick and go, oh, I treasure the things of heaven. Oh, I, that, that's us. We want that. No, no, no. Some of you in action demonstrate that you actually treasure the things of earth. And let me be clear. It's because the most sneaky sin I've ever come across is this thing called greed. 
And that's what this passage is warning about. This passage is warning that it's possible for you to be greedy and you don't know it. Because there's always some Ebenezer to compare yourself to to make yourself look like a saint, isn't there? And so the warning of the passage is be careful because your greed could lead your eyes to misprioritizing and seeing the wrong thing. Look at what it says in the text. It goes on to say in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. What? It seems like it's a different text. Like why are we jumping to talking about eyes and seeing when we just talked about treasures on earth and treasures in heaven? Well, it, it makes sense. There's a point to it. It says this, verse 23, but when your eye is unhealthy, when you're not seeing it clearly, you start looking like women in Walmart on Thanksgiving night. You start living for the wrong thing, and you're exerting all of your passion and energy and time that's leaving for things that won't matter. This is what keeps me up at night. It's the idea that I am misprioritizing time, and the things that will matter, the things that I should be giving my time to, get less time because I'm focused on the wrong stuff. When the eye is bad, when the eye isn't seeing this correctly, look at what it says. When your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have, gosh, I believe this is so strong for the American church, especially our church. If the, if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep is the darkness? If it's so dark and deceptive that you think it's light, that's the warning. You're like, we're good. I'm good. Not greedy. Greed's not blinding me. Can I tell you something? I've been a pastor 17 years. I know it's hard to believe. I'm 23. Um, <laughs> six. Got called in at six. Um, I've been a pastor 17 years. I've, I had, when, when I was engaged before I got married, I had 75-year-olds come in for sexual advice biblically on how they could have a great marriage. And I'm like, ma'am, I'm a virgin. I do not know. Like, can you give me some advice because I'm getting married? Like, I, I don't know. Like, poor guy sitting there. I, I've had people come in and confess all kinds of stuff. They confessed uh, stealing money. I had someone confess one time that they had, like, like off somebody. We'll leave that where it's at. I mean, I, I've had people confess terrible things to my office. I have never in 17 years had anyone come in and go, I need to confess the sin of greed. Because none of us think we're greedy. Like, I say that, and none of you are like, Mm, well, it could be us. No, you're like, no, it's them. <laughs> no, it's you. It's me. Like, this is subtle. It's subtle. How do you know that your eyes are bad? How do you know that you're treasuring earth? Well, the text tells us how you know. Look at what it goes on to say. It gives this warning in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Be enslaved to money. Be enslaved to money. I love that text. Be enslaved to money. The idea is you've now serve and prioritize everything around it. So it budgets you. You don't budget it. I want you to hear that again. Money, like when it's misused, it begins to tell you where to go and you what you do. But if you steward your money, the whole idea is you're telling your money where to go and where it's, what it's going to be used for. So who's, who's the master? Who's the servant? Is money a means to serve God and bless others? 
Or is money your God and you, on the backs of others, sacrifice for it? I hear lots of responses audibly right now. Right? This is a tough text to deal with. One will be your master, one will be your servant. Which one's master, which one's servant? Verse 25, how do you know your eye is bad? That is why I tell you not to worry. So ESV, it would say, therefore. That means in light of everything I just said, do this. So here's the application. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Oh, great. Here it goes. Right? America's favorite pastime. What we love, I guess it's not our fault we have to worry. We just have so much on our plate these days. And I want to be very clear. There are some of you who have challenges mentally, chemically, and God made doctors. And he made medication. And there's no shame in getting help. I'll be very blunt. I see a therapist every single month. Why? Because I have to be your pastor. That's why. Unashamed. Unashamed of that. But there is a big difference between having a medical issue and having a hobby that we find comfort in called worry. And that's where the majority of us sit. A lot of us right now are living lives that are marked by worry because we have a bad eye that treasures the wrong thing. So the command is do not worry. And here's what I love about the Bible. When when Jesus wants to get something across, he gets repetitious about it. And in this text, three times he says the same thing. He says do not worry in verse... uh, uh, 25. Then if you skip down uh, to verse, let me see where I'm at my notes because I'm all over the place right now. Uh, so we're like, great, we're not getting out of here on time. No, you're going to get out of here on time. 31, God's time, not yours. Um, that was funny. So don't worry, verse 31, it says it again. So don't worry. Then verse 34, so don't, just in case you forgot what the point is, don't what? Worry. Now here's the question. What are we not worrying about and why is it reasonable not to worry about it? Or is it just like what Christians do where they're like, oh, don't worry about it. And you're like, okay, thanks, Thunder. I'm going to go and sit in here and like in a fetal position and worry about this because you're not helping. <laughs> like, is that what God's doing? Is he just that mean friend that when you're worrying is like, hey, stop it. Stop. Bob Newhart, I don't know if anyone remembers Bob Newhart, but he had a bit as a therapist. And people would come in and they would tell him these hard and difficult things that were going on in his life. And he would look at them and he'd go, stop. And the person's like, what? And he's like, stop it. And he's, the person's like, excuse me? He's like, did it work? <laughs> no. There's no reason to stop it. What's the reason to stop worrying? And what are we not worrying about? Look at the text with me. It goes on to say this. Um, That's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Okay. These seem like essentials. I can understand. Don't worry about your social media following. Don't worry about becoming an influencer. Don't worry about getting a bigger house because you already have one. Don't, don't worry about, you know, like um, stocking up on lots of extra food and having a pantry with a backup pantry in the garage. I, I, I get that. But, but we're talking like I need dinner and I don't know where it's coming from. Because for them, the people that Jesus is talking to, getting food and water was a daily, like, ex- like major time taker. You had to walk to a well with the pot, get the water, and walk back to have enough water for the day. If you ran out, guess who had to go to the well? 
you. You had to walk back and get it. Like, like don't take your running water for granted. Like, like getting shelter and getting safety. I mean, you had raiding armies that would come in and wipe out entire cities that didn't have weaponry or anything like that. I mean, so the, getting clothes and having enough food for the day. I mean, these were real concerns. And God, Jesus is going, don't worry about it. Why? Why can we, in a world that makes that their priority in various ways, not worry about it? I'll give you three reasons. You ready? Number one, because you have a master. Number two, because he's your father. Number three, because he's promised you a future. It's not don't worry because you don't need to worry because worry is bad. We know worrying is bad. None of us feel good at the end of like six hours of worrying. Sitting through a sleepless night where you can't sleep because your mind's just going. Like, none of us are like, oh, that was great. Let's do that again tomorrow. Why can I stop? Why is it reasonable to stop? Because you have a master who is your father who has promised you a future. Where am I getting this from? Well, let me show you. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for you will love one and hate the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and be enslaved to money. Here's the point. You have a master in your life. I know you want to think it's you. It may be yourself. It may be your delusional idea of who you are and how great you are. But at the end of the day, you are serving someone. I've said it before. Probably hear me say it a couple more dozen times. Uh, Bob Dylan got it right when he said, you're going to serve somebody. So the question is, who are you bending your knee, giving your time and attention and your energy and your focus? And who are you prioritizing in your spending in being your master, because that speaks of it more than anything else. I mean, the text is clear. Your money, your time, your attention, your affection, your energy, the things that are fleeting and passing away, are you leveraging them to a master that owns eternity or to something that was created by that master that will fade away in light of eternity? I'll take the silence, this reflection. One of my favorite stories, because the idea is, if we are followers of Jesus, we have a master, we're his servant, and the idea of the master-servant relationship, and I get it, it is not a good image because of the brokenness of our world, right? Like, we have brutal masters. They are terrible in what they take from us. They never give anything back. But the idea between master-servant biblically is that you have a master who takes responsibility for all the needs of the servant. And the servant now just focuses on serving and doing responsibly what they've been given in, to the glory and the honor of the master. And so the idea is that God owns everything. We steward what God has given us. And we honor God with what he has given us, trusting that when we run out, he'll give us what we need to move forward. Okay. God owns everything. We steward it. To the glory of God, trusting that if we run out, he'll give us what we need to do, what we need to do next to be obedient. And that's biblical in the sense that God said he's given us everything we need to do every good work that he's called us to do today. Now, you can't use tomorrow's money for today's obedience. You've got to be obedient with what he's given you today. You can't use tomorrow's time with today's time. You've got to be obedient with the time that you have today. Am I, am I making sense to anyone? Anybody? Like, I'm just looking for three nods of a head, and we're getting closer to the buffet. Good. Okay, so the idea, he, he is master, I am servant, he gives good gifts because he owns all of it, I steward it. Okay, what we do is we then become mastered by things, and then we have to constantly give stuff to it because it's in need, because it's not self-sustaining. God doesn't need anything from us to, for him to be God. 
Your stuff needs your care, needs your attention, needs your upkeep, needs your focus, needs you to constantly serve it. And so what ends up happening is you have worry when stuff becomes your master because you're worried about how much longer can I sustain this? How much longer can I put out what needs to be put out for this relationship to continue in the way that it's continuing? Because you've put yourself in the position of being the serviceable savior and master instead of them knowing the real master who can provide for them. So the idea is that I'm a steward, I honor God and bless God. John Wesley, one of my favorite preachers, he was asked... Uh, in the middle of a sermon one time, a guy came in and said, your house is burning. And Wesley was like, no, it's not. And the guy's like, yeah, it is. And every time I read the story, I think Buddy the Elf. He's like, no, it's not. And the guy's like, yeah, it is. And he's like, no. And this is what he said. This is the quote. The Lord's house burned. One less responsibility for me. That's the freedom of knowing that you have a master who is in control and providing you everything you need for everything he's called you to do. It's not your house. It's not your car. It's not your money. It's not your time. It's God's time. And should the house burn down, it's God's responsibility to provide what you need to do what you've been called to do. Now, this isn't a passive, this isn't to call you into passivity. It's not to call you into going, well, I don't ever have to steward anything. No, there's a difference between stewardship and worrying. And you and I play in the line of it over and over again. We steward what we have. But we don't worry about what we've lost because we trust God with what we have as a master over us. Is he your master or is something else your master? You don't have to worry because, you, number one, you have a master. Number two, you don't have to worry because you have a, a father. Your master happens to be your father. Any of you ever worked for your parent? Anybody ever have that experience? Okay, I don't know how that one went for you. <laughs> Usually it's one of two ways and it's very steep. It's either really good or it goes really bad really quick and they end up in my office for therapy for a while. Um, here, here, here's my point. Your master is your father. Now, now look at what Jesus says about this. Um, I love this. He uses the less to greater argument. He says, look at the birds, verse 26. They do not plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. Now notice it doesn't say their heavenly Father. Because birds don't have a heavenly Father. They have a master, but they don't have a father. They have a creator, but they don't have a father. But they, they under the master, don't sit around. Like, how many of you have ever like, been walking, and you saw a bird, and it's got its little talons out, and it's like rubbing its beak, and it's like, oh, what are we going to do tomorrow, and what are we going to get for Christmas, and are our kids' lives going to be ruined because we didn't have a great birthday party that was as big as the other friend's birthday party where they had the Nerf gun battle thing, and ah. Like, you never seen a bird do that. I get it stupid, and that's the idea. Worry is not worthy of your time. Worthy is not worthy of this kind of effort. It's stupid to sit around going, ah, and worrying about these kinds of things when you have a father. That's why. You, you can't disconnect the two. It's not, don't worry because that's stupid. It's don't worry because you have a father and he knows your needs. Look at the text with me. I'm getting ahead of myself. It says, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest food in their barns, but yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you, here's the question, and this is really a good question, aren't you far more valuable than they are? You've you got to consider that. Are you more valuable than the bird? Some of you have been watching all those Christmas commercials about dogs in the cold, and you've begun to wonder, like, are, are, and, and some of you love your fur babies a lot, and you're like, I could feed the dog or we could feed our kid. <laughs> so you, there's a reason why that question's there. 
aren't you more valuable to God, the Father, maybe not your parents, maybe not some other people that love their fur babies, but aren't you to God, your Father, your Master, aren't you of more value than they are? Can, and here's the question, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? See, this is why worry's dumb. It's unproductive. Like, what did you get at the end of the six hours? Did you come up with a plan that fixed it? Most likely not. Most likely not. Instead, instead, what we ended up doing was something unproductive. It says it, your, uh, uh, your worry can't add a cubit in the ESV. It can't add 18 inches to your life. That's the idea. Look at the text again with me. Verse 28. And why worry about your clothing? Well, because ain't nobody want to see that. That's why I worry about my clothing. Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon... And all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Here's the question. Here's what comes up. Here's why you don't worry. You don't worry because you have a father. And you don't worry because he went a long way to make you his child. Consider how far God went to make you his child. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 says this. Since he did not spare even his own son. But gave him up for us all. Won't. I mean, naturally. If he went that far to be dad. If he went that far to give salvation. Won't he also give us everything else? I mean, it's, it's kind of a no-duh question, right? Like, whenever you get perspective of it, you're like, yeah, I could worry about that. But, given the fact that I have a master who is my father, there's no reason to sit here and wring my hands out over it. There's no reason to let the entire day be marked by the uncertainty of a future that God's already claimed and he already owns. See, worry doesn't feel overwhelming at first. It's like a small rock. So just just imagine, okay, you and I for a second, just imagine that every opportunity to worry that you had today was a small rock that I threw. The first one I threw to you, not a big deal, right? So maybe the first worry was, you know, how am I going to um, get the kids out the door to school on time? Because that's coming tomorrow, praise God. Okay, um, so, so, so there's, there's an opportunity for worry. Another one is, you know, like, how are we going to pay the bills? Another one is, you know, do we have enough food in the fridge? Another one is, you know, what am I going to wear and what will people think about what I wear today? Another one, before long, if you take every opportunity to worry, you've got a mountain that you're holding and it's really heavy. And medically, they've done all kinds of experiments that worry cannot add to your life, but it will take away from it. So when the opportunity comes to worry, why do we not have to take the bait? Well, I don't take the bait because I have a master. And sometimes I need to remind my worry of my master. And I don't have to take the bait because I have a father. And sometimes I've got to remind my worry about my father. And that father is so good that he's given me a promised future. So I don't have to worry because I have a future. Look at what it says, verse 31. So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. It dominates the thoughts of people that don't have a master, that aren't under his lordship, that don't have a father. They're consumed by it. But look at what it says. But your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Therefore, when you have need, and it gives you opportunity to worry, seek, (laughs) seek first. The kingdom of God 
above all else. Above all else. And live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Some of you came into this year wanting what God already had in his hand. I want a raise. I need a relationship. I need out of a disease. I need a breaking of an addiction. He's got it. It's in his hand. The question is, will you seek his hand or will you seek his face? A lot of us only want what's in God's hand. But what God offers is his face. Face-to-face intimacy. His presence, his leadership. I I get that the thing will will be great. But if you get what's in his hand but you don't have his face, you're you're still going to be left wanting. You're still going to be filled with worry. You're still going to have opportunities for anxiety to overcome and take you. But, but, But if you get him, knowing that he already holds it all in his hand, then there's a peace that can surpass understanding that can flood your life. Man, there's a new way of living and a new way of being human that you can live because of the fact that he's your master and he's your father and he has promised your future. I mean, look at the final takeaway, verse 34. So don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. He's given us everything we need to do every good work he's called us to do today. The entirety of scripture is this battle. You're no different and I'm no different than everybody else that's in the Bible. God over and over again proves himself to be trustworthy and we continue to question and test whether or not God is actually trustworthy. It's a human pastime. It's what we do. God's invitation to us this year, if you wanna be desperate for Jesus, if you want to be more in love with him, more filled with him, experiencing his blessing in your life in a way that you've never experienced it before, it won't be because what was in his hand came into your life. It will be because you drew close to his face. So I want to invite you to come close this year, to treasure heaven over earth this year, to make him the aim and the focus of everything, the reason behind all the effort. I parent not because I want to have good kids. I parent because I have a good father and I want them to know the heavenly father through the way that I love them and lead them. So it's a different focus. I work not because I want to be seen as a good employer, not because I want to make more money so that we can get upgrades and all the other stuff. I work because I have a God who is at work in me. And if he's at work in me and at work through me, I want to go to work and be an example of his work in and through me in a way that would reach my neighbor, the point and the emphasis changes. One's heavenly, one's earthly. In my marriage, I don't want to stay together for the kids. I don't want to stay together so that we can keep the legacy or the lineage or so that we can break what our parents didn't do. I want to stay together because God is at work in my marriage and marriage is a way for me to honor God and speak to the marriage that ultimately Jesus desires to have with his bride that he will have at the end of time. And so we don't just stay together and endure the hard times because we're just going to make it and we're going to be tough about it and we're going to, no, no, that's an earthly way of thinking about it. The heavenly way of thinking is we're going to stay together because God's in it and he's at work through it and he promised to bless it and he gave us a portion of his spirit in it. So we're going to fight for intimacy and we're going to fight together because this speaks to the gospel and the way that Jesus loved us by laying down his life for us, the church. So we lay down our lives for each other in our marriage. We serve each other in our marriage because he served the church by not coming to be served, but to serve and to give us, oh man, I'm preaching right now. And some of y'all just looking at me like, wrap it up, thunder, and I'm trying. 
That's my point. I want a heavenly perspective on everything under the heavens below. And I want you to have the same because when we get that, man, God through a passionate, dependent people can do incredible things that we can't even yet to imagine or perceive to be possible. So if you're worried, don't. Because you have a master who is your father, who has promised you a future. Who has promised you a future. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you today. We know the opportunity may be rampant for worry in your life. We don't take that lightly. We're not telling you don't, and if you do, you're wrong. No, we're telling you, we all are going to have to fight against the struggle. I'm struggling to not worry. You're struggling to not worry. Let's remind each other together, and let's walk forward away from the worry and into the providence and the hand of God. Yeah. We would love to pray with you. We're here. If you need prayer, if you need to stand, we'd love for you to sing. But you move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen.